Church, grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the pastoral epistle in the New Testament towards the back of your Bible named Titus. You'll find it tucked in, small letter, just after 2 Timothy, just before Philemon. Last week, we primarily worked out of verse 5. And today, uh, we're going to continue on in this portion of the text. Last week in verse 5, we saw um, out of that really the good design of God for shepherds to lead his sheep. To understand that, celebrate that. And then in part two today, we really look at the meat of the qualifications of those shepherds um, as overseers, elders, and this important work that the Lord has given them to do. Look at the whole passage with me, and then we'll dig in for what the Lord has for us today. Titus chapter one, verse five through nine. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. As we studied last week, church, we saw that God ordains three titles to be used to describe this important office in the local church's leadership. Uh, And then the commissioning of these individuals to lead the church, to feed the church and protect the church and care for them, to care for his sheep, God's sheep, his elect, his blood-bought, adopted children, And today, uh, in the passage today, as we look um, from verse 5 through 9, we we see two of those titles used, elder in verse 5, presbyteroi, and and then in verse 7, overseer, episkopoi. Uh, Paul says to Titus in verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, uh, and goes on to describe qualities of that man. So the elders overseers, pastors, all describing the same office, are God's appointed leaders of his blood-bought people. They are appointed, readied shepherds of the local flock. They are put in charge of God's people and therefore are to be trusted and honored and, and obeyed and followed. They're charged to steward what God has entrusted them and to steward it well. They're to do this for the sake of those they lead and for the glory of God and not for their own good. A steward, if to remind you, is a manager of something that belongs to someone else. And uh, the, the people of God, I mean, what a call to steward the lives of those that Christ has, has saved and made his forever. There are only three uh, offices or roles scripture defines for the local church. Despite all the other titles and definitions that we use, there's three biblical offices or roles 
for Christians in the local church. It's actually a great catechism answer and a whole study to come later in our study on Wednesdays through the Word of Truth Catechism. Um, but to remind you briefly, the first is, is that office of elder, also called pastor or overseer. That is the leadership of the church. They are the leaders. Uh, the other title given is to uh, a select group of qualified men who are ready to, they're members, but they're ready to assist the elders in a formal way. And they're called deacons. And then we also have the third is our members. These are the sheep of the local church that the elders are called to tend to and to lead. These are the committed men and women of that local congregation, you all who are covenant members. Um, and there's a number of servant roles that, that you fulfill, and so we use other definers to help talk about that, like staff, some of our paid staff, and uh, ministry directors, or disciplers, or facilitators, or volunteers, different titles that are used. But it's just an important qualifier, especially as you get into the weight of the, of the qualities and uh, qualifications for an elder. The leadership of the church is not the deacons. It's not the staff. It's not the ministry directors. It's not the coordinators. It's not the facilitators. It's not the group leaders or the disciplers. You should respect all those people and honor them as Scripture calls you to and let them do their job well that the elders have assigned them, um, not make light of that. But it's, it's important to clearly understand the leadership of the church are the elders, and that's it. That's the leadership. So don't, don't group in some of those other folks and call them the leaders. No, the, the members are given a job to do, different roles we play that might seem to have some authority and maybe some delegated authority by the elders, maybe some, some leadership of overseeing a certain facet of ministry or the way a, a group facilitator or leader is, is leading you in the word in a group setting. But you have to see that's only an extension of the shepherd leadership of the elders. And it's not equal to that leadership. Uh, that means even those who teach on the teaching team are really select role to carefully teach God's word. Those even are faithful men are under the supervision, direction, approval, and authority of the elders. Um, th those who handle money or, or those asked to disciple others are under that formal supervision, direction, approval, and authority of the elders. The elders are the ones you're called to honor and obey as your leaders, as scripture says. The elders are the ones you must trust and let them lead you even when that's really hard, especially when it's really hard to fulfill what God's given you. And so all of this, church, is why this role of this office of elder and those who serve in it can't be taken lightly because his call to how this is to work is something we are to respect. We're to live within it. We're not to just reject it and do it our own way. This is why church members are not nominated to serve for a term as board elders, right? That, that was actually once the practice of this church that we reformed, according to Scripture, still sadly the practice of many churches today, to use those terms in the wrong way. Not to say those people didn't work hard and give up much and 
labor for the good of the body. It, we just want to use these titles and to see these things the way God has ordained this to work. Um, this is why those who are given the high responsibility of this role are to be vetted over a length of time, to be tested, to see how they handle tough stuff according to God's specific standards, and then to be held accountable ongoingly. This region of Crete that Paul's writing to where Titus is needed more shepherds for the saved saints that were there in the different portions of that region. And so Paul is commending Titus, one of your primary jobs, you need to get to work and you need to do this wisely and rightly, is to appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. We see that, verse 5. Appoint men of God who meet these qualifications and are then to be God's stewards over his most precious possessions, his blood-bought people, his elect, his adopted children, to be the overseers and leaders of Christ's church. The qualifications we use then to test and vet and approve a man readied by God are found here, very famously, in Titus chapter 1. Uh, and then throughout the New Testament, but specifically and, and very sharply in, in a couple other important spots, namely 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Peter 5, and Acts 20. Um, understand with me this morning, the overriding concern of the New Testament in relationship to church leadership is to ensure the right kind of men serve as elders. Especially given, as we talked a lot about last week, the nature of what the people of God are called to do in following them. The office of elder of God's church is not an honorary position bestowed on individuals who have attended faithfully for a number of decades or, or who are senior in years. Nor is it to be filled with good friends or rich donors or, or the most charismatic personalities. Nor are they to be positions that, uh, that are filled by only those who graduate from seminary. Um, the church office of eldership is open to consideration of men who meet the biblical requirements that the New Testament unequivocally emphasizes. If that need is there, and there is a good fit and full meeting of that qualification, then they are qualified and able to do that upon the wisdom of the other elders to add to their number or adjust or whatever might be before them. Now, a very important qualifier needs to be really said and understood before we dive into what is a bunch of very high standards for mature believers in the church. There is no such thing as an elder that does not stumble or does not sin. Even the church's best, our greatest theologians, writers, authors, reformers, pastors of old, all had stuff that they were fighting, working out, working on, right? Only Christ lived perfectly without sin. This is why you need to be praying for your elders, those preparing to be an elder. Why? Because like you, we're always under attack. 
The enemy to affect the church can make some of the greatest damage to get to a shepherd. Um, we are being tempted all the time, right? We, we don't get the title of elder and then temptation to decide, no, I'm going to not go there anymore. No, it pounds on our door too, right? Jesus tempted as well. The problem is when an elder falls into sin or is given to sin and then disqualified, the pain, the heartache that that means for the church is really great. And so an area we need to be diligent to be praying. Will you pray for us, church? Will you walk with us? Will you fight for us? Will you work with us? And help us be accountable to Christ and his word to be patient with us as we steward this role amidst the same big life hurdles that many of you face every day. As we... Consider Paul's list of qualifications that he gives to Titus to be used in the vetting and appointing of elders. Um, this, this means something to you as a church member or even maybe someone checking out our church to consider where you might be a committed member because obviously who those shepherds are is a major part of that. Um, because of the role you are to play, you know, it, it, this is a big piece that affects your life. What a shepherd is meant to be to you. So this is not something just to discredit and, uh, you know, I'm not going to listen as well today because this is talking about other individuals. I would also encourage you to go so far to really think about your own life. Why? Because the markers used to show maturity in men ready to shepherd the flock are simply that, great markers of Christian maturity. So even for you ladies, men and women, these are these are principally the attributes that you can consider. Where am, how am I doing at these things? Where might I need to grow and mature? Where might I have erected some roadblocks where I'm just kind of stalled out in this area and need to break through, need to invite in a greater refining uh, voice and, and, and invitation and ready for the Holy Spirit to really move and take me to a new place. Um, so I would just encourage you, all of us can greatly benefit by, by looking to what a mature Christian is doing well in the name of Christ, in the power of Christ, right? Th these are not individuals who just figured out how to just run better than you. No, there's a, a fruit of how Christ has been at work in these men to produce a maturity and a fruit, right? It's him that does this. Um, in that vein, never forget that by man's power alone, we all are wicked and a failed race. And it's only because of Christ's humble, sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave on our behalf that any of us are eternally alive and that anyone is able to be then sanctified ongoingly and matured and readied to lead in this way. By God's grace, church, we all are desperate for Jesus. May the Lord lead us all in this time. May he be preparing future elders. Much of this room is completely full first hour as of late and uh, just really commended many of the, the children and young adult 
men and teenage men, you know, and, and parents to be thinking about who, who, who am I discipling that could be being readied for such a task? Uh, uh, women, young ladies that would be the wives of these elders. Um, and, and, and just, we don't know. We don't know. We make disciples faithfully. We trust what he's doing uh, in these things, preparing missionaries, preparing future disciples, preparing leaders for the church. Um, may the Lord lead us in his time, in his time. We trust him with that. May he be protecting the church by protecting the elders from sin and disqualification. Maybe, may he be at work in the sheet to be faithful to honor and follow the elders and lead and, as we lead and, and not discredit that and not throw that aside. To take that serious. So let's jump right in. Verse 6, Paul gets right to it. If anyone is above reproach, he says. The first qualification that Paul says an elder must be is above reproach. This is so important, he's going to say it again in verse 7, that an elder is to be above reproach. He's actually going to say a couple other things that are very similar, if not just like it. I'll talk about that in a moment. To be above reproach means the man is known for choosing the high road. They choose what is holy instead of what is fleshly. They don't ride the line of, of sin or selfishness. They move away from that line in maturity to be above reproach. To be above reproach is to be operating in a way where there's not areas, gray areas, where you could be put to blame. Not playing light with those facets of life not presenting patterns of scriptural disobedience or, or living in that spiritually kind of gray way that where others could say, it looks like this man is being caught up in sin or, 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 or is, is on the brink of that. You know, being above reproach is to be away from that. An above reproach man is taking some diligence to, to, to wrestle and fight and conquer the temptations of old in, in his life, in a less mature time of his life, and to move away from those things. Why? Because we're all tempted. Temptation continues to come at us, as we said already. Qualified men ready to elder have proven over the years to face that temptation, those ongoing presentations and knocks at the door, and to walk in a disciplined way in Christ, to, to, to move away from those things and to do what honors the Lord, even when it's costly, even when it's going to be the long road. I don't take the short road to what I want. I'm diligent to trust the Lord and be willing even to go the long road if it means staying above reproach. Now again, this doesn't mean perfect. Don't hear that. It does mean they are a great example, though, of the Christian life and ones that you could look to. It means that they're not often stumbling uh, or struggling to the degree that a less mature man of faith is in, in the different areas of life. A great way to evaluate it is simply is the character of God at work in this man, in and through this mature man. Is he diligent to fight against sin and Pursue what's righteous, right? How are you looking in your life to be above reproach, to make some changes where you're moving out of that gray, you're moving away from the line, you, you're doing what honors the Lord, to move into those areas of life and to live there. Um, this is closely linked to other two qualifications we see in, in verse 8 
Uh, one is a lover of good, and the other one he says there in verse 8 is holy. And one is holy, righteous. Let's talk about both of those in relationship to being above reproach. He must be a lover of good. An elder must love and fight for, be passionate about what is righteous, about what honors the Lord. Why? Because God is good, right? So we just sing about it. Jesus says, Luke 18, 19, no one is good but God alone. So if, if we're going to evaluate what does it mean to love what is good, then a, a way I think that's helpful and practical to consider that, what determines what is good? I would just say what honors the Lord? What honors the one who is good? The mature and readied man to lead God's people loves the things that honor the Lord and turns away and avoids the things that don't. He loves to fight for things that are good. He loves to promote things that are good. And he loves to lead the sheep that will follow to what is good. He must be a lover of what is good. It also says he must be holy. We're all called to be holy as our Father is holy. The, the reality of growing in righteousness, to grow in what is right and holy is the work of the Spirit on the believer's life progressively. The one who is holy, the one who is um, stable or practicing righteousness has embraced, is the evidence in that man of one who's embraced the refining fire of God in their lives. Why? Because that means they've gone on a, on a journey over a real length of time of sanctification where the refining fire of God has had to go to work. The Holy Spirit's had to go to work to, to help a, an individual see what is sin, to, to turn from that, even when it's costly, to produce the fruit of the Spirit in that individual's life, the evidence of their sanctification. This is the individual who's let Scripture define them and, and, and reprioritize them, right? And the ways that Scripture talks about to be a Christian is to die to self and live to Christ. So I'm loosening my grip on what I want, on my dreams, on my ways. I want it to look like this. I want it to be like that. It's a man who, who is finding a peace, a joy, and loosening that to, to cling to what honors the Lord, to do it his way. Bearing that through the Spirit. He's not cutting corners. He's, he's, looking, he's not looking to advance himself. Right? The, the, much of that fleshly drive is changed. Right? We see this in a man like Paul. I mentioned it last week. Who was of the utmost accomplished, recognized, and, 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 and praised individuals of his society. And yet, most of his Christian life was... was Solo was was in jail. Was being beaten. Was was looked at in a whole different lens, even to the degree where remember last week he loves to call himself a slave to Christ. See see the man who's died to himself to now live to Christ. There is a joy, a passion for what is holy. To make much of Christ, his King. Back to verse 6, if anyone is above reproach and with that a lover of good and what is holy, he goes on, says, must be a husband of one wife, right? It doesn't work if this man has many wives. That's a problem. 
You must have one. But what this is really getting to is, is something more than that. Hear this statement carefully. It's a good synopsis of what is efforted here and as we look at all of Scripture together. An elder, one ready to do this, must be a one-woman man who is sexually and emotionally pure and faithful. This is a good evaluation because if a man is not faithful to his own bride, how is he going to be faithful to Christ's bride? One, uh, a one-woman man is a devoted man to the call that God's put on his life to fulfill that covenant. He's a faithful man. If he's single, he honors his future wife by keeping his eyes, his thoughts, his affections on the Lord and not on others who are not his wife. Right? There is a way that a single man can fulfill this, right? Even as Paul fulfilled it. If he's married, then he loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 29. Qualified and ready man, a mature man of God, does not pursue other women with his eyes. That would be to be unfaithful to his wife or his wife-to-be does not pursue other women with his thoughts, with his emotions, with his time, and definitely not with his body. Gross consequences of that, as Scripture is clear about. If a man is not going to lead and love and care for his own wife well, why should he be trusted to do this for Christ's bride? Right? It's a good point of evaluation. Being a one-woman man, a faithful man to his wife, is not only what we are to not do, but, but also what we are to do. It points to that. And, and having proven to do well. Um, so that means he doesn't neglect his wife. He, he is attentive to her. He prioritizes time for her in the nature of God's first things and what he calls a husband to do. He prioritizes time to hear her heart. He, he romances her as according to Scripture, as appropriate for that which is for the marital bed. He cares for her and nourishes her and leads her unto what is good and honoring in the Lord. 
man, maybe that's just right there, just a, a, a fresh opportunity for you to be reawakened to God's call on you as a husband in the ways that he has designed you to love and lead your wife. Um, we have other teachings on that in greater depth. If you're hungry for some more of that, we can point you to it. Maybe have some humility in what that is and a desire to mature in some of those ways unto the glory of God and her good. Paul continues, he's the husband of one wife, all that we just spoke about, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. There's a qualification here of how a man's managing his household. They must lead a well-ordered household, a healthy family life, should be evident that there is obedient and respectful children. This pertains to children who are still in the home under the authority of the parents in that way. Church, how one leads at home is one of the biggest tells for how one would lead the church. Why? Because the church is much more like a family than it is like a business or a sports team. The Puritans referred to the family as the little church. Understand that a man may be very, a very successful businessman, just killing it, or, or, or a very capable public official, or, or a, a brilliant office manager and strategist, a, a top military leader, but a terrible church elder. That's why a man's ability to oversee and manage his household is the test, a great test that we're given to help evaluate that where that's in play and not these other markers. Um, a couple clarities here that are helpful in just our casual reading of this text in particular. When it says his children are believers, we might take away something there that's more than it's trying to say. The Greek word Paul uses here is pistos, which means trustworthy or faithful. His children are trustworthy or faithful. In other words, what it's really getting after is his children are well-behaved. They honor their father and mother. The hope is that the man who is diligent to love and lead his family in the gospel will, the hope is that he will get to rejoice in the salvation of his children. But as we know, according to doctrine, sola scriptura, we have to think about this under the banner of the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord, right? Salvation of your children belongs to the Lord, not to the diligence of the Father when we're talking about salvation. And so we, all parents, need to trust the Lord with his providential plan, election, for their lives. Not hold him contempt to that, but to trust him, to, 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 to yield to him, to worship him. In his perfect and holy will comes the salvation of our kids. So what is the specific clarity here and what cannot be present or the man's disqualified is, is if, a children, if a man's children are in blatant sin, blatant rebellion, participating in gross sin, dishonoring their parents is a marker of this man not being qualified. A, 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 the greatest call on a child's life, according to Scripture, is to honor your father and mother. And if that most fundamental thing is not happening in the home, then that that insubordination, that rebellion, according to Paul, is a problem. 
They're not in a position to lead. And, and practically, you can see how that plays, right? If, if, if there's that level of problem at home, then there's a greater need for attention there, right? That man should not be divided with his attention now to care for so many others when, when that part of life and first things is not well. What this qualification is mainly about, see this, is not necessarily skill. Um, it, it is a, that, are they doing these things faithfully? But it is also the ways in which we prioritize and commit ourselves. The man may be doing some really good work to teach the word at home and exercise some discipline to lead in godly ways, but the constant weight of either the wife and or the children who, who are an ongoing struggle in God's wisdom, he's protecting that man, he's protecting the church in this qualification from trying to add the weight of shepherding hundreds of others now when that part, that main part of life is not in order. When talking about the prioritization of time, especially as we've been speaking about God's given call to us to attend to our first things, the first things he's called a husband or a father to do in loving and leading his own family. If that's well, then maybe he has room to love and lead the church. But if not, that's a problem. And all too many, what we see then when that's skipped or kind of overlooked, what you end up with is what we see in much of the modern church where you have pastors, kids, and or wives who really grow to hate the church, resent it, simply for the fact that that husband-father is so much more in love with and invested in the church family than his own family. For those of you who are older, just a quick illustration of this, and can go back and dial back the clock to the, the long-ago date of 1986, you might remember the, the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. In the final scene, Ferris's friend Cameron is seen throwing a massive fit in a glass garage on an elevated, beautiful home hill where he is kicking and yelling at his father's sports car. If you remember, he's beside himself saying, I hate this car. I hate this car. You love this car. You loved it more than me. This scene serves as a stark reminder that the family can't come second to other things in our lives. Fathers, husbands. The reason why so many pastor's kids end up so tweaked, I say that confidently because it's too often the case, is because for many of them, they could be found kicking the church building at some point saying, I hate this place. I hate these people because my daddy loves and cared for them way more than me. Church, your elders need your prayers. They need your encouragements. They need your accountability and your support. And for you to understand and endorse why often we might need to tell you, no, I can't meet. Or I got to meet later because I got to tend to my first family first. 
the men that God will prepare to shepherd with us will have proven to love and lead their family first and well, and will do that in an ongoing way, the different seasons of their life, without compromise, in such a way that's producing some real fruit at home that can be followed and, and mimicked, and it frees that individual up to have the capacity then to shepherd many, many more. Look to me with verse 7 now. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. We've covered that already, so moving on. He's not, he must not be arrogant, is the first thing mentioned here. Church, arrogance is pride. Pride is an enemy of God, Scripture says. Pride is evil. It's wicked. Why? Because pride causes us to believe that man is worthy of worship and praise when ultimately worship and praise belongs to God. We're, we're, we struggle to be glory thieves or attempt to be at least. Pride is the essence of the fallen angel who in his pride became a demon. Pride is, is the marker of the fall of our own race, the fall of mankind. For it was, it was the temptation for Adam and Eve to be like God that they leaned in and ate the forbidden fruit. Ever since Eden, pride has been a major folly and struggle for mankind and why it's a marker of something that needs to be matured out of one ready to lead the church. God's shepherds cannot lead people, God's people, to godliness if they're arrogant or, or self-minded or stubborn, proud. You can't be stubborn. You can't be proud. It's here we see the major difference between Someone who makes a good shepherd leader and those who don't lead well for the benefit of the sheep. The man who tries to force his direction doesn't end up being a good shepherd or a long-term shepherd. A shepherd who has to use force to move a sheep is missing what it is to be a good shepherd. The one who lovingly, gracefully, but firmly, biblically leads and moves the sheep, does so in a way that is successful. It really is back to what we talked about last week. There is this really unique marker of leadership that is, is unique to being a shepherd. Because it is, it is such a, according to the world's agenda, such a lowly example of leadership. It's a humble thing. Out on the hillside, smelly with the sheep. It is, it is a, a, a together. It, 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 when you think of a prestigious leader in society, number 854 is shepherd, right? You, you don't, but, but therein lies the uniqueness of this point. It's not about prestige, not about ego. They must not be arrogant. It's been an interesting watch, even just the last 10 years, that some of those more public, quote-unquote, pastors who have eventually become disqualified really struggled with arrogance. He's not to be quick-tempered. A man ready to elder the church, a mature man of God, is self-controlled and exercises good discipline, both mentally and emotionally. 
There's an even temper. And they're not quick-tempered. James 1, 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Solomon has similar counsel in Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. word spirit here means anger, emotions, uh, feelings. Solomon says it's, it's wisdom, it's maturity to check those fleshly emotions and anger and to act with restraint. That's the sign of maturity. Every one of us is often in this life through the valley of the shadow of death presented with maddening moments frustrating crossroads, disappointments, great disappointments where someone didn't meet your expectations and, and even unjust situations. The mature man is one who does not justify why he's often given to a quick temper, but instead has proven, shown to hold back fleshly responses and instead is known for a radical evenness of temper. Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's a testimony of your reasonableness. That, that word translates a radical evenness of temper. I don't get overly elated. I don't get overly upset. The Lord at work in me brings an evenness, a practice of calm in the midst of elation or fallout. an ability to not be baited to heated arguments or to have fleshly over-responses or jump into dramatic divisions. Now again, church, see this. This is not the result of, of someone's disciplined, forced will. It's the result of Christ at work, the Holy Spirit to soften, to refine, to mature, to produce something. It's one of my favorite fruits of seeing a converted Christian, someone that you saw back in the day in the midst of their flesh, and they were off the handle. They were, they were tyrants. And then you know that man in his salvation, or that woman, and who is this person? <laughs> Praise God, Right? May that be ever so evident in each of us, maturity of the Lord's work in us, but a qualification to shepherd the flock. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard. This one seems kind of easy, right? Addicts don't make good elders. Bumbling and stumbling and all consumed and sucked out and out of control, given to whatever the vice is. Do you realize that doesn't have to be drugs? It could be food, it could be money, it could be relationship, love, romance, it could be work. It's being consumed by something that really has control over you instead of the Holy Spirit. 
you're, you're drunk in that, in that thing you've given yourself to. So it's, it's more than just being a lush. It's not talking just shortly about that. It's an elder must be free from excess, from excesses, from, from an overgrip. In other words, he is living a God-honoring lifestyle that doesn't damage his testimony. He's exercising God-honoring moderation even as he enjoys the good things of God's creation. Right? It doesn't mean he has to become a monk, shave his head and live in a concrete room. And, and the very fall of man is really rooted in this sin. We, we see uh, Paul portrayed in Romans 1, 24-25, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. The word lust there is epithumia. It's, it's an over-desire. An over-desire, what could be even for good things was their demise, dishonoring their bodies. It turned because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and their over-affection, their over-clean to whatever that thing in creation was, turned into worship and serving it instead of the creator who is blessed forever. A qualified elder can't be an addict, can't be addicted out of control. No, they need to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. They can't be a glutton for food or drink. No, there must be discipline there when it comes to these things. It's a man, a mature man of God, a mature woman of God is, is one who can enjoy God's creation without it being your joy. without living for these things in such a way they become an idol to you and you become ruled by them. It's important that our leaders are given to and ultimately controlled by, our shepherds of the church are ultimately controlled by only one thing, Jesus. Amen? He's not a drunkard. goes on to say he's not violent. He must not be violent. A shepherd leader of the church surely cannot be a man prone to using physical or verbal violence to navigate life and handle life's hardships, crossroads. Instead, an elder must be known as being a peaceable man, one who's not quarrelsome or creating divisions. The way of the righteous is to avoid divisions, to, to pursue peace, not violence. Listen to how the New Testament talks about this in varied spaces. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Church elders must be peacemakers. This is a major part of helping sheep to overcome their forms of immaturity or maybe propensity to hold on to hurts, to create unneeded rifts, or get sucked into unhelpful drama. Right, Parents, don't we just do a lot of that even just with our own kids? And now think about the role of a shepherd for hundreds of people, men and women, old and young, in the church. 
All these brothers. We're sitting right now with, with, uh, with prospective members that we're about to raise up and, press and put before you to pray over to become members in a couple weeks. Very exciting. And it's exciting to say you're about to grow your family in a big way, in a special way. And I'll be reminding them, though, what that means. There's going to be some stuff. You don't just have one brother or sister anymore. you got a lot. And you have to be good at pursuing peacemaking, asking for help when you're struggling with it, making every effort towards it. Because one of the great footholds the enemy gets on the local body is when we are content with a grudge, content with looking at you with disdain, not fighting for unity in the Lord. Shepherds are called to moderate disputes, help lead sheep away from fleshly vindication, that, that thing that flesh wants. I want to be vindicated from self-righteous pursuits, agendas, from being prone to getting stuck into drama. Help, help the sheep navigate these kinds of things without themselves resorting to fleshly actions or words to try to be effective. He says, they can't be greedy for gain. Must not be greedy for gain. An elder must not be greedy for things or money, a reputation for himself. There's an identity, his, his identity, his priorities must not be fixed on the temporary kingdom, but the eternal one, right? A shepherd's not going to lead the sheep well under the Lord if he's really like caught up in, in a temporary thing himself. Trying to get that money, trying to grow that vacation status, get that nicer whip, get that, get that nicer ring, get whatever those things are that we chase. A man qualified to lead God's people is financially content. He's well managed to live responsibly within his means and not beyond them. He doesn't say, Lord, no, this isn't enough, so I'm going to go get in debt. I got a little plan I got to carry out. He's not a man caught up in covetousness or keeping up or one who exudes poor management of his resources, thereby equaling debt, debt to others. Think about what that kind of management would mean for the church then. To be entrusted with much greater resources, the hundreds of thousands of dollars and all of the means and property of, of the local body. Monetary success is a big idol in our society. We know that if you just look at Scripture. Scripture talks about it a lot. The temptation to really be sucked up in chasing the temporary stuff is big. The mature man of God is ready to lead God's people when, when the American dream is drowned to him in the satisfaction he finds in the gospel. I often tell our young adults, young married couples, and they're getting ready, your, your life in Christ, if, if honoring him and living moderately and living within your means, probably means you're going to own a lot of less stuff than the people around you. It's not going to look the same. Why? Because most of those people are either sacrificing way too much, working too much to have all that they have, making, making unhealthy compromises to have more, or 
they're out of bounds in debt to have it. There's two ways to pursue uh, how we steward money and stuff. And, and one is to make an idol of it, so much so that you would maybe even potentially forsake Christ to have it. This was the example we see with a rich young ruler, Mark 10, 21 through 22. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The other side of the coin is to live generously, moderately, open-handedly, because your joy is in the Lord, not in your stuff. A whole different way of living. Paul testifies of these in 2 Corinthians 8, 2-3. In a severe test of affliction, they had an abundance of joy and at the same time extreme poverty, but it overflow, overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord. They were poor, but they had so much joy in the Lord, they, they, were, they were good to let go of temporary stuff and be a blessing to others. whole different posture. A mature man of God, a ready man to elder, cannot be greedy for the things of the world. In verse 8, let's go on. It says, it must be hospitable. Not only must he not be greedy for stuff, but the stuff that God does entrust him with. Right? And that's a varied degree. In, amongst the church, we clearly see that the Lord ordains that some have much and others have less. We don't try to make that some governmental rule of equality. You have to all bring your stuff and then we redistribute it. No, I mean, there is a, a way the Lord ordains in his providence to work in that. So whatever you have, what are you doing with it? How are you stewarding it? To be unselfish with it, with your personal resources, that you're welcoming, you're generous with those that God puts around you. This is because the mature man of God understands that everything he has, everything he's worked hard for, is not his. It's the Lord's. Belongs to God. Again, he's God's steward, which means he embraces the fact that it is God's life, relationship stuff that he's managing for God's glory, for others' good. That means the elder, the mature man, is hospitable. He's quick to open his life, his time, his home, his family to those in need to be loved, to be cared for. There's an economy of that at work. There's a joy, there's a rhythm, even though it's a lot. There's a peace that comes with it. Going on, not only is he hospitable, um, we talked about being a lover of good, he's self-controlled. And then later at the end of verse 8, he's disciplined. These are, these are very close. To have self-control is to be disciplined. 
a qualified man to elder, a mature man of God, a mature brother or sister in Christ, pursues and values balance in his or her life so that we're not all over the place. We're not willy-nilly. We're not just kind of throwing it to the wind. It's rejecting kind of a hippie mentality of just like, I'm just free and I just figure it out as I go and we'll just go. No, there's, there's a seriousness of God gave me today. I'm going to steward it well. I'm going to have a plan. I'm going to look to exercise the priorities he's given me and look to really put him first. And if he gives me another day, then I'll do it again. The responsibility of managing the church in addition to one's own life, family, career means that he must be an organized man. A man who operates not on the fly, not haphazardly, but with distinct prioritization and management of his days, of his affairs. The qualified man of God's church can't be constantly missing deadlines, forgetting appointments, showing up late, overcommitting himself in a way that causes him to compromise God's priorities. Another facet of this qualification is these are men who are able to do life with restraint, stay tucked in, to not get caught up in stuff that gets them out of bounds. So there's, there's a moderate management of stuff and life. An ability of a person to enjoy a glass of wine, a God-given gift, and then not let that turn into drunkenness, that's sin. To, 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 not, um, to, to be able to spend money and buy things, but not have to work long hours to keep filling the bucket and, and, and f- never feel content with what you have. There's a temperance. They're, they're, they're temperate. They're willing to live moderate lives. There's a, a moderate controlled temperature. It's not extreme. It's a person who doesn't gorge themselves. A life of moderation is satisfying to them. Why? Because their satisfaction is not found in their stuff. It's found in the Lord. That They fight the fleshly thing to covet and, and, to, and to look at the, that guy and that guy and, 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 oh, I wish mine looked like that or my whatever. But to be grateful for what they have, what God's entrusted them. There's a discipline to not get too close to that lion and then get caught up in his jaw. There's a discipline as to the distance that that should have. A discretion, a discipline, a self-control. It says says here in verse 8, they're to be upright. The, The Greek word there is equitable, so that means they're to be fair, they're to be impartial, they're, they're to be upright in their judgments. Judgments are to be based on scriptural principles and not personal opinions or agendas. James says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, James 2.1. So we're not to be biased, we're not to show favor to others. That is not a godly way to lead We are to be equitable with others, for this honors the Lord. We don't don't play politics 
like many politicians do, to, to advance our causes. We fight that, to trust the Lord. And, and I'll be honest, sometimes this is hard for the sheep because certain sheep might have a closer personal relationship to certain shepherds and, and then therefore an expectation like, well, surely I, I'm going to get a little more favor out of you than, than that brother or sister. Um, in a given situation, elders need to be impartial in leading all those that God puts among them, no matter the year spent together, the personal connection or not. Elders must be able to be upright in their discernment and handling of the church's affairs and of the sheep's struggles. Plurality is a great way that helps check that along the way, too. Finally, we turn to verse 9. Um, and if you're seeing the clock, you see we're out of time. And that was my prep. I, I, I had much more written about verse 9. I realized, wow, this sermon's way too long if I include verse 9. And yet, what verse 9 offers us is, slow, is worth slowing down to consider the weight and the importance of the layers within it. And so, Lord willing, I'll, we'll be back together next week and we'll do part three of this little portion. And we're going to dig heavily into verse 9. Let me read it to you quickly. He must as we relate it to the rest of the qualifications. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. God's word, church, is trustworthy, amen? It's worthy of holding firm to in all things. And, and God declares it's, it's what we need to function, to thrive, to grow. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable it's good for us. It's needed to our prophet for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The sheep need to faithfully be taught God's word so that you have sound doctrine and then can also be protected from false teaching. The elder must be not only knowing of the word properly, but able to teach it. Paul's clear to this, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 2 as well. Not only to teach it, church, but to make decisions by it, that we are leading, we're governing, we're making decisions for the church God's way, not our way. We have to know it and understand it if we're going to do that. Can I ask you again to pray for your shepherds who are commanded to properly and faithfully and unapologetically preach and teach the Bible to you, and to lead God's church according to scriptures and not our own desires. I know many of you do, but it's critical to continue to be upheld in prayer in this area so we never slip into wanting to do it a little bit our way or maybe the way you want it done, but the way God wants it done. I'm thankful for much of the needed reformation in our church to get us to this place with that area, and may the Lord give us great perseverance to be faithful to it for many generations to come. Amen? Um, in wrapping up, let me briefly just mention, there's a couple other qualifications we see in other texts that, that they, those texts say all the things we said today, but, but quickly, an elder must also be willing to serve, Paul says. Peter says, there, there's the speaking to this, um, to not serve out of obligation, but to organize one's life, that there's an ability to not only be qualified, but then to take on the task of the doing this. 
in such a way where that sacrifice is made. And, and I asked first service, I want to ask you to uh, pray specifically and especially for of your current elders, Steve and Rob, who labor full-time jobs, come home tired at the end of the day, and then pick up their second job of shepherding the church. A qualified man who takes on this role has to be able to do all that and without compromise ongoingly. It's a big one. They must not be a new convert, according to 1 Timothy 3.6, but show ongoing maturity and have been tested. They must have a good reputation among non-Christians in the community, according to 1 Timothy 3.7, and they must be worth following and imitating to provide a spiritual model of discipleship for others to follow and duplicate. These are other important qualifications we see in the Word. I'm thankful for the men that God's raised up to lead our church in the different seasons, and I'm excited about who he's pouring into and what that may look like for generations to come in the ways that maybe you've been challenged and maybe need to step up in inviting in some greater reformation or refinement in your own life. Maybe now, maybe the Lord's using today to do that in you, and we'll see where the Lord might take that. May we also take our discipleship of those around us seriously because it's in those means that the Lord is raising up future elders as well. May all of us be in tune with the areas we saw today that, that are for God's glory in our maturing and growing in sanctification. Let us tend to those things. Let us confess to another, invite them in, go to the word and grow, not just think about it for a minute and move on. Go to work, Christian. Let's mature together in Christ. I'm excited about what's ahead, what the Lord is doing in us as we tend to these things his way. Stand with me. Let's pray. Let's thank the Lord for his good design and worship him as we get ready to go. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the ways in which you're at work in us, for the gospel that sets us free. None of this, any of us would do. We're selfish through and through outside of Christ, full of idols of our hearts and pursuit of our own glory. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the, the indwelling of the Spirit and the believers, for conviction of sin, for a hunger for your word, and obedience to maturing, to being refined. Thank you for the ways that you've prepared the elders that are serving, have been for a long time, and, and those whom you're preparing to come. Lord, we want to honor you with our days. We want to savor Christ, cling to him, abide in him above all, for it's in Christ that we are sanctified and matured glorify you. We love you. Hear us now as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.